There was a keynote speaker at a conference that I went to. It was a pastor's conference I attended uh, uh, many years ago. And he was telling us about another conference that he spoke at. He was at a, uh, a meeting of a lot of Baptist churches. And he said he had all of them. You know, they were all together. There were hundreds of people in attendance. Um, he was running a workshop that was overflowing. He said the front row was just filled up with, um, he said, you're, and this is his words, not mine, your typical, you know, older Baptist ladies, you know, nice, prim and proper and all, all seated out there uh, real well. And he said the room was filled to overflowing. There were people standing in the back. And as he got up to, got out to uh, speak, and as he was getting ready to begin um, saying what he had to say in that workshop, he noticed a fella in the back was holding up a sign. And the sign said, your fly is open. <laughs> Awkward. He said, well, instead of thinking on his feet real quickly and asking everyone to bow their head in prayer so he could discreetly take care of the situation, he said, instead, what he did was said, Oh no, my fly is open. <laughs> Today, you know, one of, one of the things we're going to look at, you know, when we engage people, we will have those awkward moments that come along. And now I'm not really thinking of um, wardrobe malfunctions as, you know, we, as our society has come to call them sometimes. But you see, when we engage people uh, and we try to help them move closer to Jesus, we may become aware of some glaring sin in their life. How do we deal with that awkward awareness? I hope it's not by blurting out, uh, oh, you're a drunkard, or uh, what? You know, you're, you're cheating on your wife. I mean, I hope it's not by us blurting out, uh, you know, th- their sin or something like that. Uh, today we're going to see how some people handled an awkward situation rather poorly and how Jesus handled, handled an awkward situation uh, in a much better way. Let's pray. We're going to turn to our passage and um, and look at that this morning. Father, thank you for your grace to us, which does not does not waive our foolishness before other people. Lord, you forgive um, wow, don't let us ever forget that. It is so important. Uh, so, so draw us a little deeper now into your word, into your truth, into your heart. That we'll know that we've met with you this morning. Use your word. Your word is powerful. Your word is effective. Father, I pray that what I say may be uh, lost in your word, that they it may draw us all into you a little bit more. And Lord, minister to hearts. You know the pain that's here today. You know the anguish. You know the joys. You know the hopes. Father, while these can be distracting, I pray what they might do today is lead us again into connecting with your word and your truth that our life might reflect more of the God you really are. Not the God this world sometimes would like us to think you are, not even the God that sometimes we, in our frustration, erroneously label you as. 
but to see you as the God we've been singing about. The God above, the God on the throne, the God who has done all that we might be reconciled to you. So continue reconciling our lives to you in your way this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be in John chapter 8. If you want to turn there, John chapter 8. It's on page 985 in the Pew Bible. Now, as we, if you look there in your Bible, most Bibles have, um, you know, the, the, in these notes, you'll notice many of the Bibles have a, a note. If you have a study Bible, it has a little bit longer note there. Uh, but you may notice brackets that begin at, at uh, verse seven or chapter seven, verse thirty-five, fifty-three. I'll get it right. I just look dyslexically sometimes. Uh, at chapter seven, verse fifty-three. There's a bracket that goes all the way to chapter eight, verse eleven, uh, and those are bracketed off in most of the translations. Now, I just want to touch on that for a moment. Uh, the reason you see there some some of your Bibles that have footnotes. Um, and study Bibles that have notes, and still they are, those are just very brief statements on a very, on a much more complex issue of canonicity, meaning, you know, should these verses be included in the canon of Scripture? Should these verses even be in the Bible? Now, in addition to that question, then there is also the question as to where they should be placed in the Bible. Now, in answer to the question of canonicity, you know, are they authentic? Are they real? Are they true? Uh, the scholars who know a lot more about these things than I do, uh, they all feel they, well, I couldn't say all because certainly there's some uh, scholars who are a little bit more liberal than looking at the Word of God than I would be. Uh, but they feel this event very definitely is an actual historical event from the life of Jesus, partially not only because of the character of it, um, partially also by the way it's written, but also they have other they have uh, documentation outside of the Bible that that refers to a story very similar to this or to what some believe are parts of of this story here. So as far as it being authentic, you know, and worthy of being part of Scripture, yes, it seems very definitely it is. Now, as to where the event should be placed, uh, the question that comes up there is because of the style of writing, those who study those things and, and look into it, the style of writing is not at all like the rest of the Gospel of John. It is not at all like John's writings or, you know, either in his gospel or in his letter here. However, the style of writing here that's, that's used is right in line with the same style you see in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, you know, and, and, and the style, you know, that it's written in just fits in real well with that. And some of the ancient manuscripts, some of your, your notes, uh, your Bible notes might say the ancient manuscripts, most ancient manuscripts or many ancient manuscripts don't contain this this passage, and that's true, some of them don't, but some of them do. Uh, some of those, some of the ancient manuscripts also have an odd blank space uh, where this shows up in some of the other manuscripts, uh, you know, that are there. Uh, and then some of the manuscripts uh, actually have them tied into Luke's gospel where it also seems to, seems to fit... Uh, quite well, really, and it seems to fit better in Luke's gospel, but um, there's a theory as to why it's misplaced, if you will, uh, and why it didn't show up in some of the ancient 
more ancient manuscripts and why some have blank spots. Uh, and the theory, you know, is that um, some of the ancient um, scholars and scribes thought that this was too lax on the sin of adultery. And, you know, because of that, it was um, set aside. Keep in mind, they didn't have this book like we do that they would say, this is the Bible. It was still in process of being collected and in process of being written in some instances. So keep in mind, we're not talking about they had this, opened it up and said, oh, this is bad, and they ripped this page out. That's not what it is. It's as they had these manuscripts and they were sharing those around in in other churches and things that they thought that perhaps this passage might be misunderstood by some as as being um, uh, too easy and too lax on the sin of adultery. And the church at that time in particular saw the sin of adultery as a very clear sin. They did not want to confuse the issue particularly among those who were coming into the church from outside of any religious tradition or outside of idol worship, and they were coming into the church, uh, you know, from a society that was very, very steeped in, in lax sexual morals, not too different than the society we live in today. So with all of the study that I, that I've done on these theories, I, I feel, you know, it is, Evident, it seems evident to me this is, this is an actual real encounter that Jesus had with a woman. But it also seems to me, you know, that it is quite possibly better, originally, more originally probably was in one of the synoptic gospels. Um, you know, with that in mind, I, I really don't have any problem, um, bringing a message to you from it. Uh, but, at, at, at the same time, I'm not going to tie it into the other context in John uh, like I've been doing the last few weeks uh, as we looked at some of the others. I, th- I think we certainly could tie it into John, but um, I'm not going to do that uh, today. So I hope I didn't confuse any of you. If I did, or if you have any questions on this, stick around for potluck dinner. Come on downstairs and feel free to talk to me about it. I'd be happy to talk with you about it. That's, you know, that's just fine with me. But John chapter 8, um, beginning with verse 1, well, really, if you look at verse 53, it says, you know, they scattered and went to their own homes. And then in verse 1, it says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he went to the temple complex again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of adult- in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They asked him this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. 
Now, I'm going to mention a few observations uh, that stuck out to me as I was reading through this and as we make our way to what I think is a point to help us better engage people, connect them. Remember when I'm talking about engaging people, I'm talking about engaging people for Jesus. I'm not just talking about you being able to make your social life better, you know, and have more friends. What I'm talking about is you being able to have more friends in heaven because you've talked to them about Jesus and are able to help them, you know, see and understand more who he is and have, you know, therefore you would have more friends in heaven. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, how can we help people move closer to Jesus? How can we help them to move from a life that doesn't know Jesus and, and seems to ignore Jesus? How can we move them into the life then that, that does know him, does recognize him, does see what a difference he makes in life? That first verse, uh, you know, about Jesus, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives really seems connected more to, uh, you know, verse 53 of chapter 7 there. We're telling us everyone went to their own home. This is the section where it seems to me it's out of context and fits better with the Luke, with the events that Luke records during the week of the crucifixion, because during the week of the crucifixion, it says that he stayed outside of Jerusalem in the area of Bethany and the Mount of Olives, where you know and that he had stayed there. And it seems to me then, you know, that that probably fits a little bit better there. But I wanted to include verse one because as I was reading it, it was just a great reminder to me of how much Jesus prayed. Now, please bear in mind. The, the verses here do not say Jesus prayed. I'm simply telling you what it reminded me of as I read this. As I was reading this, it reminded me of how much Jesus prayed because Luke tells us in other places, you know, that, that, it, that it, the uh, Garden of Olives, you know, the, the garden on the Mount of Olives is where Jesus often went and met with his disciples, that they often went there to pray. That's how Judas knew where to bring, where to bring the mob uh, that was arresting Jesus on the, on the night that he was, when he was crucified. And that's how they knew where to bring him, because this is a place, Luke says, where they often went to pray. So as I was reading this, and I was reading through this, verse 1 just reminded me of how much Jesus spent in prayer. Now, again, it doesn't say here that he prayed, but, uh, but to me, that's, it, it just was that reminder. So here's the observation I made in, in this from that verse is that we need to pray more. Now, again, the, the passage doesn't specifically mention prayer, but Jesus prayed so often and that was one of the, the, the garden there on the Mount of Olives was one of the places that he prayed. And so it just reminded me that we need to pray more. When I think about sharing and engaging other people and, and telling them about Jesus, prayer is a huge aspect of that, should be a huge aspect of that, because I don't want to, I, I, I'm not interested in giving them my thoughts and my wisdom. I want to be able to connect them to God. I want to be able to direct them in such a way that they can see God and know him a little bit more. Now we're told here, you know, he's, he's staying there. Well, not staying. It just says that he went, returned, you know, that, that he went to the Mount of Olives. And I assume, you know, that sometime along in there that, that he was praying. Well, the next thing we see, which begins unfolding in verse two, uh, he engages a crowd and he engages a crowd in a temple in order to teach them. Now Jesus spent a lot of time in the temple. You can remember one of the very first instances recorded in his, in his life was when he was young, when he was 12 years old and his parents, you know, for, and I lost track of them, and um, they left him at church. No, they did really. I mean, think about it. they had gone to Jerusalem. Uh, they this is just a little bit, a, a little bit of a pressure release for those of you who have left your kids at church before. You know, uh, 
you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they, were, they had gone to Jerusalem for one of the festivals, and when they had left, uh, they thought that Jesus was, you know, in the company of some of the family. They thought that he was in the other van, you know, they thought he was in the other car. And, uh, and so when, when uh, then they left, and, uh, and, you know, they stopped at the first gas station. Um, this is a modern translation. And when they stopped at the first gas station, you know, for, for Coke and a potty break, um, they realized Jesus wasn't with the rest of them, you know, because as Joseph was up there getting ready to pay for the snacks, he was going to pay for Jesus and they weren't there. Okay, that part's made up, um, just for those of you who aren't quite as familiar with the Bible. But they realized he wasn't there after they had been traveling a while, so they forgot him at church. So they went back, and where did they find him? In the temple, Remember? They found him in a temple, and he's, he's conversing, questioning the uh, Pharisees, the teachers uh, there. What I think is happening there is not that he was questioning them as we like to think, you know, where he's, where he's shaking his finger at them and saying, what are you thinking? I think he's questioning, and he's, he's learning, he's growing in, in, you know, in his humanness of the, you know, of, of more of what he's, what he's to be, you know, and so you find him there in the temple. When you read through the Gospels, you often find him. He goes to the temple for how, you know, he's there for the Passovers. He's there for the festivals. He's in the synagogues and he's teaching and you see him in these places. Now, he often drew a crowd when he wasn't in his hometown, at least. If you recall last week, it was we looked at Mark chapter 6. Six, yeah, eight. Anyway, where he was in his hometown and when he was there, even though they knew him, it said, if you recall, when we looked at this last week, it said he was only able to really heal and minister to a few people because the rest of them kind of rejected him. But other places, you know, when he was when he was there, even though they were amazed at his wisdom in his hometown, they just kind of brushed him off. But in other places, he drew a big crowd. Well, that's what happens here is Jesus is teaching in the temple. You know, this big crowd comes in. It says he sat down to teach them a normal, normal position. You know, we stand to preach and you sit there. Uh, the, the teacher sat and some would st- sit, you know, around him and then others would be standing, you know. So uh, it was stadium seating without the stadium. You know, they would, you know, they would uh, get up that way. And so the, a crowd was there around him. And then it says, that while this is going on, while the crowd is around him and he's teaching them, notice it says the scribes and the Pharisees bring a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. And what they do is they force her into the center of this group. Get this picture in your head. They're all standing around listening to Jesus teach. You know, and the center would be where Jesus was seated. And so what they're doing is, you know, the people would be gathered around and some sitting, some standing, and the scribes would shove this woman through the crowd in order to stand right there in front of Jesus and in front of this whole gathered crowd. A little awkward for the lady, for Jesus, for the crowd. You know, this is just an awkward event that's going on. And then it gets a little more awkward as the scribes and the Pharisees point out that this woman was caught in the very act of adultery in case she wasn't embarrassed enough. They bring out that she was caught in the very act of adultery. You know, they publicize her sin. It's not necessary. It's, it's not necessary to publicize someone else's sin. It's not. We don't need to do that. We do not need to publicize anyone's sins. But yet this is what they do. 
Now, when they bring her there and they bring her and push her into the center of this crowd, because, again, that's where Jesus is, as they push her into the center of this crowd and force the way up there and public make this public announcement that she was caught in a very act of adultery, that's an important thing, you see, because according to the law, they would need at least two witnesses to, to be able to accuse this woman and, and convict, if you will, this woman of this sin. The Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, were all about the law. This was their thing. The scribes were kind of like, to say the lawyers of their day isn't, isn't really accurate because it dealt with religion, not the, not the, the, uh, governmental law it dealt with religion and religious law and the pharisees you know and they studied the scriptures so you know these guys knew their stuff and they you know they were all they were you know they were all about the law and wanting to follow the law and having to follow the law the law required two witnesses here they are the law is their thing and in verse five notice it says they mentioned the requirements of the law in such a case as stoning the women couple of places in the old testament where it talks about this situation one is leviticus chapter 20 it says if a man commits adultery with a married woman if he commits adultery with his neighbor's wife both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death now in this particular verse it doesn't say anything about stoning um, that that will come up in, in the next section we look at here uh, but you'll notice here it calls for both the man and the woman to be put to death the adulterer and the adulteress, both the man and the woman, they, they only brought the woman. They only brought the woman out. They didn't, they didn't bother to bring the man. And Deuteronomy chapter 22 seems to be more where this, um, where this instance falls. It says, if a man is discovered having sexual relations with another man's wife, both the man who had sex with the woman and the woman must die. You are to purge the evil from Israel. Now, before we look at the next verse that comes along here, notice, you know, what? again, it's both the man and the woman there. And, and what's the reason? The reason isn't to be mean. The reason is to purge the evil from Israel. Then it goes on. And it says, you know, if there's a young woman who is a virgin engaged to a man and another man encounters her in the city and has sex with her, you must take the two of them, not one, the two of them out to the gate of that city, and here it is, and stone them to death. Now he explains why. He says the young woman, uh, the young woman because she did not cry out in the city, and the man because he has violated his neighbor's fiance. and there's that phrase again, you must purge the evil from you. And now I included the next verse because I just wanted you to see that, uh, you know, God is not being, you know, harsh and unjust here. Verse 25 gives us a little more explanation on the picture. It says, but if the man encounters an engaged woman in the open country and he seizes and rapes her, only the man who raped her must die. So, you know, what he's talking about in the verse before would be more of a consensual, more of a consensual act, you know, of what, of what they were doing because if it's non-consensual and he cries out you know then then you know somebody should come and help um, you know so uh, if the scribes and the pharisees were asking here about stoning this woman uh, she must have been an engaged woman to be married because both the leviticus passage and the deuteronomy passage talk about uh, just killing this you know just uh, killing them both as an adulterer and adulteress 
Um, we really won't go into how they did that, but it wasn't by stoning. Uh, it was still unpleasant because you ended up dead. Um, you know, here now, what what we have when we think about someone engaged, uh, and we think, you know, if there's an engaged woman and they're going to stone them, it, it, it was a much more binding, you know, it was a much more binding arrangement than the engagements we have in our society. It was much more binding. Think of think of. Um, Mary and Joseph, when Mary and, and, and when Mary and Joseph were, when Jesus was born at the beginning, and it says Mary and Joseph were engaged to be married, they were engaged to be married, and yet what did Joseph do? And Joseph saw that she was with child. He made the natural assumption that you know that she had relations with someone else. He didn't want her to be stoned. He still loved her and cared about her. And what did it say? He looked to set her aside. He looked to divorce her quietly. Divorce. I thought they were engaged. Engagement was much more, uh, it was a much stronger commitment than what we have in engagement. We have an engagement, you know, I, I've shared with, you know, with you before, you know, my over-the-top marriage proposal to Ginny, you know, when we got to that point in our relationship and I looked at her and said, we can get married if you want to, you know, and she said, hmm, well, okay. She had nothing to do that Saturday. So the, um, you know, the, the you know, it, it's, it's a much looser arrangement in our society than it was there. So here, you know, they, you know, the, uh, again, it seems they're ignoring the law, really. They ignored the man. They didn't bring him for stoning. Now, we can only assume why, you know, and people make a lot of assumptions. You know, it seems logical that he was encouraged to simply entrap this woman. We don't know. We're not given the specifics. Maybe he was a well-known man around town. Again, we just don't know. We're not, we're not told but what we are told here is their goal was only to trap Jesus. Their goal was not to uphold the law. The scribes and the Pharisees who, you know, built their, built, built their reputations on upholding the law uh, and pointing out the jots and the tittles and all the little things and all the ways you didn't uphold the law and the things you needed to do to uphold the law. All of a sudden here, they are not, they are no longer upholding the law. They are only wanting to trap Jesus. This much is clear. We should not ignore part of God's word for our own convenience or for our own purposes. We should not ignore part of God's word for our own conveniences, for our own purposes. That's all the scribes and Pharisees were doing. The ones who supposedly cared so much about the law all of a sudden weren't caring about the law. They were caring about trapping Jesus. That's what they were caring about. They were caring about winning the argument. They were caring about putting this guy down. They were caring not, not about this woman at all. They were just simply caring about their, to even say their own positions almost seems ludicrous because they're doing what their positions, they're going against what their positions called them to do, which was to uphold the law. And here they are, they're ignoring the law. So the scribes and the Pharisees then ask Jesus if he recommend that they follow the law, even though they didn't really care about that. They didn't care if he was following the law or not. They only wanted to trap him. What they didn't realize is Jesus came to fulfill the law. 
Not to ignore the law or to set it apart. In Matthew chapter 5, it says, do not, Jesus is speaking, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, they're talking to one here who came. Jesus was not about setting the law aside. They were setting part of the law aside. Jesus was not about setting the law aside. He came to fulfill that law. Their question was really if Jesus was going to agree, agree with their interpretation of the law, if he was going to you know, do that, in, in which case he would find himself in conflict with the Roman government. The Roman government at that time, they were under the rule of the Roman government. The Roman government kept capital punishment, execution. That was, they say that, for, that was at their prerogative, not at the prerogative of the Jews. That's why when Jesus was crucified, he was brought before Pilate. You see? Because they couldn't put him to death. They wanted to know if he was going, if Jesus was going to uphold the law and therefore butt heads with the Roman government, you know, or if he was going to ignore God's law and say this woman didn't deserve stoning. What they were trying to do, it says, is trap Jesus. And they thought they had Jesus and they thought they gave Jesus no wiggle room. Here's the neat thing. Jesus doesn't need wiggle room. He doesn't need, Jesus doesn't need wiggle room. He doesn't, you know, that's not part of his living. That's part of our living sometimes as human beings. We want to try to wiggle out of, you know, something. Jesus doesn't need any wiggle room. Now notice his response. His response, it says he stoops down, he begins writing in the dust that covered the temple floor. And he begins writing there. Now, we're not told what he wrote, and there's a lot of speculation. You may have heard, uh, you know, that he was, he was writing out the, the sins of these other guys. He was writing out, um, you know, parts of the law. He was, and there's a lot of different theories on what he wrote, wrote down. Uh, here's something that's clear to me with that is God didn't really want us to know what he wrote down because it's, it's not there in his word. He didn't tell us. Now, some of the theories could come, you know, the the word that's translated there as right is a word that means to delineate, you know, as you would in a list. So that may be where some of them get the idea that, you know, he was listing out some of these things. But whatever he wrote, it doesn't really matter what he wrote. Notice what, you know, whatever he did write, it, it, it seemed to do two things here. It gave those who were who were coming to Jesus, it gave them time to think. And it seems to me that he also wrote something that got their attention. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, though, they're still trying to push Jesus' buttons. You know, they want him to deny the law or to deny mercy. Deny the law and stone this woman or deny, deny mercy and have this, woman, have this woman killed. You see, and then, and then you know, Jesus being the friend of sinners is, goes, right, you know, goes right down the, the, the swirly hole. You know, it just is gone. This whole thing of him having compassion for people and love for people just goes right down. If, if what they're going to do is stone this woman. And so Jesus stands up and he tells him, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. According to the law, the witnesses, the two witnesses or more, the witnesses were to be the first ones to cast a stone. The others would join in after those who were witnesses cast the first stone. And these weren't rocks to irritate her. These were stones to kill her. Meant to kill her. Not to give a little wound, but to bring a fatal blow. 
the one without sin among you should be the first one to throw a stone at her. Jesus was the only one who could meet that requirement. He was the only one there in that entire temple, the only one there who could meet that requirement of being the one without sin. He was the only one. And then it says, for a second time, Jesus stoops down, continues writing in the dust of the floor of the temple. Again, gives them time to think things through a little bit. You know, and Jesus gives them time to back away from their foolishness. And it was, I found it interesting the way, the way it's worded, uh, you know, in, in the verses there. Uh, because, you know, he gives them time to think. It says, you know, that when, in verse 8, when he stooped down again, continue writing on the ground, and it says, when they heard this, you see, it was giving them time to think about what Jesus had said. It was giving them time to think, you know, a little bit more about even what, what they had to say, you know, and think things through. Jesus gives them an opportunity to back away from their foolishness here. And they begin to leave. It says the older ones first. I'm apparently in that group now, and I appreciate that. You know, maybe we gain a little bit something. I, ho- I hope we learn by some of the foolishness that's gone on before. You know, and it says, then the woman was still standing there. It says, in the middle with Jesus. So I assume that those he was teaching were still gathered around. Otherwise, there is no middle to be in. You know, and Jesus tells this woman he's not going to condemn her. You see, the reality here is Jesus did not ignore her sin. He addressed her sin. He didn't need to debate with her whether she was a sinner or not. He didn't need to have her rehash all of the details. He didn't need to have her do any of that. He, but notice, he does address it. He tells her to do what? Go and sin no more. What he tells her is to radically change her living. That's repentance. He tells her to repent, to radically change her living. Go and sin no more. That's a challenge. That is addressing what went on there. Now, Jesus could have very legitimately condemned her. But instead of condemning her, he chose to renew her. Instead of pushing her down, he chose to lift her up. Instead of, instead of bringing more, more abuse on her and bringing more guilt on her, he chose instead to tell her a, a way to get rid of that guilt. Some people don't realize they need forgiveness. You know, there are certainly some people in the world who do not realize that they need forgiveness, and, you know, we need to help them understand that. But I will also tell you that too many people today think they cannot be forgiven. There are too many people today who think that, you know, that forgiveness is not something that, 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 that is within reach for them. When I was pastoring up in Riverdale, I was... Um, I met a man who was involved in um, homosexual sin. Uh, he was a, a married man, and he had gotten himself involved in this. He was a co-worker of one of the, one of the uh, fellows who came to our church there. Asked me if I would talk with him. This guy wanted to talk, so I met with him, and I talked with him. And we talked about it, and he was... Uh, uh, obviously affected by this you know he it was and he didn't think that he could be forgiven and i don't remember exactly how long after that it was it seems to me it was within a couple of weeks uh, he took his own life 
thinking he couldn't be forgiven. I know another man who was involved in child abuse in his past. This man had come to a relationship with Christ, though. And he understood the forgiveness. What he couldn't get beyond was the embarrassment. I talked with him many times. We talked many times about that issue. He took his own life. I told you before about my brother. My brother thought he could not be forgiven for the things that he was involved in in Vietnam. And I still remember exactly where we were when I was talking to him about Christ. And he said to me, Pat, I'm glad it works for you. But it won't work for me. And seven months before I came here to be your pastor, my brother took his own life. Too many people, too many people don't understand that forgiveness is there. They know there is condemnation. What people need to know is that there's forgiveness in Christ. There is forgiveness. Jesus focused on this woman's future, not her past. He didn't focus on her past. He focused on her future. He didn't dwell on the past at all. We need to help people see what they can be in Christ. And what they can be in Christ is forgiven. Is forgiven. Now Jesus laid out a stiff challenge for her to go and to sin no more. He aimed her higher. He aimed her higher. He lifted her up. He didn't harp on her sin. We don't need to harp on their sin. We need to lift them up. We need to aim them higher. We need to help them see Jesus. We need to help them see that there is forgiveness. You need to help people see that there is a future in Christ. They do not need to stay in their past sin. It's not that sin doesn't matter. It does. It does. It's not that it doesn't matter. People need to know there is forgiveness. Point them to forgiveness. Point them to Jesus. The thought of forgiveness and restoration is never mentioned here by the scribes and Pharisees. It's never mentioned at all by the scribes and Pharisees. Only punishment is mentioned by those who were supposed to be the religious leaders. Only punishment was mentioned here. If we're going to effectively engage people, we need to quit condemning 
and highlight forgiveness. We need to help them see we need to get past their past. It's not just them sometimes, it's us. We need to get past their past. Instead of condemning this woman, Jesus forgave her sin. He placed, don't ever forget this, he placed her own sin on his back right next to mine. Right next to mine. Because I needed forgiveness too. Remember your own forgiveness. When you're talking with others and you are and you find yourself in that awkward awareness of their sin, remember your own forgiveness. What separates us from those who don't have a relationship with Christ, you know, is not the guilt. It's the forgiveness. That's all that separates us from those who don't know Christ. We are as guilty as they are. What separates us is the forgiveness that we know in Christ. Help them see forgiveness. Engage people and help them find forgiveness. Tell them about new life in Christ. Let's pray.